when you come to work, you have job demands that are on you and you have job resources. So if you think about it, you have energy boosts and you have energy drains. And if that balance of those two things aren't right, what happens is you, it um, leads to stress and it leads to burnout. Hi there, you're very welcome back to All In Business, your weekly business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. Today we're talking about scaling, specifically digital scaling, and asking, is it easier or harder to get support for emerging tech trends? We'll be asking the co-founder and COO of HR analytics firm Talavest, Laura Bellier, and the founder and CEO of Safecility, Kianarty. His company specializes in building safety and IoT. After that, our Trailblazer interview is with the former Connacht rugby star whose gym software company made headlines last year when it secured $10 million in funding. It's Glowfox CEO, Conor O'Loughlin. But before all that, don't forget to hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast and YouTube each week so that you never miss an episode. And you will, of course, find us on social media too. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter with the hashtag AllInBusiness. Joe presents All In, together with AIB backing Irish business. So, Laura Bellier and Keanu Flaherty, thanks so much for being with us here today to talk about scaling digital. Before we do that, let's get some context on yourselves and your companies and why you're here. Great. Ladies first. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, I am the co-founder of an HR technology company called Televest. What we do is we measure employee engagement for employers, as well as we look at the energy and the productivity of employees when they come to work. My background is I would have worked um, globally as an HR director for many different organizations. And throughout my experience, this is one of the challenges that we just seem to um, you know, fall, fall down on around measuring this effectively. So I decided that um, I was a little bit frustrated with the tools that were available, so I decided to go out and to build something on my own, and that's why uh, we built Televast. Excellent. And yourself, Keen? So I'm uh, Keen O'Flaherty, the founder of Safecility. Um, we are solving the problem of keeping people safe in their buildings and communities. Um, so we know two and a half years ago after Grenfell, there was a huge revision, or a look at how people are keeping uh, tenants, uh, occupants, students safe when they manage buildings. And we're building technology that automates the testing that has to happen under law to keep people alive uh, and to keep people safe when fires or worse uh, and accidents happen. Um, we're using a combined IoT and, and cloud to do that. Uh, we've had to build our technology and our hardware here in Ireland, which has been really interesting. Um, probably not something we thought was possible, but we've made it work. Um, and it's been uh, really interesting working with the likes of housing authorities or universities, uh, large manufacturers, who are under huge pressure now in the last two years to get their systems up to a really modern approach to managing your data and managing your infrastructure from a technology or a process that's been really 1980s, 1990s sort of manual technician paper records, um, really surprisingly how uh, out of date a lot of these processes are. So it feels like we're kind of at you know, the, the cutting edge and helping people mm. to digitize their buildings, which is quite exciting. So when it comes to scaling digital, there's so much to talk about here. It's hard to really know where to start, but but let's try and figure <laughs> it out. Um, we will have people who watch this show and they have um, maybe something like yourselves, HR as a service, compliance as a service, or maybe they have a more traditional business. Maybe they have a bakery, maybe they have a 
barber shop, maybe, you know, some sort of traditional business. Um, and obviously for those people, it's a lot easier in some ways to scale something that everybody knows, everyone can get their head around, everyone has some experience with. For both of you, when it comes to the work that both of you do, working with every tech buzzword there is, AI, machine learning, IoT, edge computing, SaaS, all of the other ones in between, what has been the single biggest challenge for you in trying to scale that, especially as Keen mentioned, in Ireland? And go. <laughs> and that'll take about 30 minutes. Yeah, how long have you got? Um, hardware for us has been right. really critical. Like, I think we started um, with the intention of, of integrating other people's hardware. Hardware is a hard job. It's mm. big company stuff, lots of money tied up in, in capital and working capital. But it, what, the hardware we needed wasn't on the market. So we had to go away and build it. Finding the funding to do that and validating that you're building the right thing for the right market price, mm -hmm. it's incredibly hard to do when you can't pivot or iterate the way you might with a, with a SaaS or a software offering. We can't spend a week sort of changing something in the product. Once it's fixed, it's fixed and we've got to mass produce it. So that's probably been the most difficult aspect of, of our journey has been um, finalizing our hardware and getting it right. And were you surprised when it came to the time to find this hardware that it didn't exist? Because, yeah. I mean, obviously, I know, I know compared to yourself, I know nothing about IoT, etc. But I would have thought that with the Qualcomm's of the world and, you know, any chip that you might need, I really would have thought it would be there. Yeah, and you, just wasn't. you and me both. Right, um, okay. I, I, think, I think a whole heap of, of our business journey has been being surprised at how few uh, parts that we needed existed. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's probably fair to say that IoT was farther along the hype cycle than it was in actually right. executing, you know, the products that people wanted. Um, so we had to go back to scratch. We had to figure out how to build the pieces, build what we needed from the pieces that were there uh, and programming those. In, we're dealing in our first feature, it's an emergency lighting. So an industry that's been around for nearly 100 years technology and platform standards that have been around for 20 and 30 years and to not find that sort of technology widely available was really surprising mm -hmm. but at the same time because we're all a bit mad in our, in our when you lead a business you kind of go that's a gap mm -hmm. that's an opportunity right there so we've built into that opportunity and, and as a result probably are playing far above what a startup might do in, in the sector nor ordinarily. Okay and what about for yourself Laura I suppose HR is traditionally all about people, you know, face to face and yeah. people. Um, was the tech there when it came time for Talavest to get going? No, not really. Mm. So when it, when it would have come to things around engagement, this would have been the very traditional once a year, every two years survey that went out that, you know, everybody was like, oh, I've got to fill out 50 or 60 questions. By the time you get the results back, it is in the past, you know, mm. and the way the workforce has changed, the way that people want real-time data, real-time information, you know, needs to be translated into organizations like that when it comes to capturing that voice of your employee. So we have the other issue around data being very siloed as well. So we, you know, collect all this information and then we analyze this data throughout the employee life cycle. So from when someone starts to someone leaves. So that becomes very siloed with that data. So we've kind of had to come, uh, build technology that's going to overcome that and allow for us to get really good insights from the employees in real time and give that back in real time back to the, uh, back to the organization. So definitely some challenges in scaling the technology 
you know, we've um, gone from, you know, building a version one, we worked with some amazing customers. So we've really learned from our customers what works, what doesn't work. You know, if you have the challenge of a workforce that don't have access, you know, to a computer or a laptop, then that becomes an even bigger challenge. Like, how do you capture the voice and get those insights back? Mm-hmm. So we've, you know, combined with trying to scale this technology, learning from our customers, you know, we've been able to be successful in doing that. I suppose what you both have in common in your companies um, is the the way that you present the data back to your customers. How important is user experience and, and user interface and your dashboards um, to the services that you provide? Yeah, it's it's critical. I mean, you know, if you think of yourself as an employee, how many different forms of you know, surveys or feedback is requested from you in your everyday life. You know, so if you can make something that is not only really easy um, for you to be able to give that feedback, but also to, to know that your organization is actually going to listen to it and act upon it is so critical. And that's where that data comes back that, you know, we can provide and give that, that, that data and insights back to the organization. Um, there is a real lack of the skill set of data data scientists, you know, at the moment. Um, And that's probably one of the biggest problems that we're solving for our customers, where we're able to take that complexity of that data that's very siloed, bring it together and tell a story and give those insights back to the organization. Similar experience for you? Yeah, absolutely critical. Um, We've we've customers with potentially 10,000 or 50,000 devices reporting in their estates that could be spread out nationwide. So managing what they see when they log in and if they're not under a deluge of information that's irrelevant to them has been a really big problem for us to to, to solve. We've Mm -hmm. had to figure out how to clarify the information they really need uh, and deliver that to them in a way that is familiar. I mean, these customers are used to logging, as I say, onto email or Slack and seeing visual interfaces that get them what they need to know. And in our sector, I mean, buildings or construction or whatever kind of hard materials, it's very much 1.0, paper and pencil, really poorly designed websites or interfaces. So we've had to move that on. Uh, and the customer feedback, once they see what they can expect from products in our site, it's, it's been brilliant. But we've had to put a lot of time and effort into it uh, at the same time to, to manage that level of data and, and make it understandable and actionable for our clients. So that's on the customer side, but I'm wondering about the other side of things, I guess, the governance and the regulation side. And it's interesting with tech and anyone trying to scale something digital, the goalposts can change so frequently. I think of some like the biggest tech companies around, the Googles, the Facebooks, they try to do something new. Maybe they try it in America, then they try it in Europe and European authorities say, no, not today. No, thanks. Um, Have you guys encountered any of that yourselves? That, you know, changing goalposts when you're trying to scale tech? I think back when, with the lead up of GDPR, obviously, there was a lot of work yeah, that was put into that. You know, a nightmare. It was a bit of a nightmare. Mm. Um, so, you know, but I think, you know, in a way, it was a good thing because it put controls around, you know, when it comes to people's personal information and so forth. So, you know, I think for us, when that happened, we did have to spend a lot of time, you know, working and to make sure that, you know, everything we have is compliant. And then I think it's working with your customers and them, you know, having the confidence that, you know, the data that we have that we collect is anonymous, you know, and when we give it back to our customers, it's anonymous. So 
what what we do find though is when we go outside of Europe and we work with customers in the U.S. and Canada, they have a confidence around that because you know because mm. of uh, the European regulations, which has been to our advantage. Okay. Well, what about you, Ken? Yeah, I think I think GDPR is always there in the background. Mm. I think it's really important for us. Um, but I think that one of the things that we've had to consider more deeply is the post again, post-Grenfell. So the Hackett report uh, and the inquiry that's ongoing is going to lead to a complete change in how buildings are regulated. And here we are producing a product in 2020 saying that we're going to keep you compliant and offer it as a service. Once those rules change, we have to keep our product abreast of all of that. And if that's adopted across Europe or parts that aren't adopted across Europe, they're the kind of challenges that we we have to manage for our customers and they're expecting us to be on top of it. Um, In many cases, what has been built won't be under the same regime as what's going to be built, say, in a year's time. Mm-hmm. So managing that nuance for people who have old and new uh, and those different regions that might be affected by different regulations, that for us is probably a big headache that's coming down the line for us over the next ongoing, I imagine, for the next 10 years. Right. Yeah. And of course, you'll need the right people around you for that. You mentioned, uh, Laura, a lack of data scientists, and I'm sure there's a lack of skilled people you need, Keen, in, in in your side of things. How do you navigate um, finding people with the right skill set when there's a lack of them out there and also you're competing against the big tech companies for the right people. Yeah. It's really tough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's been uh, a challenge. I think it's also tough when you're in an environment where you know, funding is always in the back of your mind and you're competing with some really big paychecks from some really big technology companies for people who might not really have the experience you need. Um, We've used an awful lot of uh, access to research in third level. Um, we're co-located with the College of Art and Design in Dunleary, who've right. been fantastic. That gets you so far. Um, getting people with skill and expertise, a lot of it selling the vision and giving them an opportunity to be really responsible for building a product mm. rather than a part of a product. Yeah. I mean, driving people with a mission is really all we have. Yeah. Well, what about you, Laura? Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree more. Mm. It's... Um, I guess one of the things that, um, with my background in, in HR, um, you know, do, I always do a lot of the recruiting, obviously, and, um, you know, it's finding the right kind of profile of a person as well, because not everyone is going to be cut out for the, you know, the, the highs and the lows of, of being in a startup. So it is around selling the vision and them having an opportunity to, you know, approach and, you know, have that autonomy to do a lot of the work that they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, and approach it the way that they want is what I have found for, you know, the people that um, have come along their journey with us that's um, had them stick around, you know. So. Right. so you're kind of pitching it then as it'll be a bigger fish in a smaller pond rather than an anonymous cog in the big tech wheel. We won't, we won't name any companies. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Okay. And you mentioned funding there, Keen, uh, which was going to be my next question, so that was timely. Funding for the type of companies that you're both involved in. Um, I'd like to think in 2020 that, um, you know, that's a non-issue. But is it any harder to get funding for things that, especially I think in IoT, for things that are so rapidly changing? Uh, I'd have to be honest and say it is incredibly hard to get funding for an IoT business. Um, Investors want you to be able to throw ad and marketing spend to ramp up your users. And that's pretty much all they'd like you to be doing. In IoT, it's much harder. You're building a hardware that might take a year, year and a half. It mightn't work first time. The sunk cost potential and risks are huge. Mm. Um, so finding investors aligned and understanding with what the business opportunity is and how long it's going to take to get there 
it takes a lot longer. Um, and not everybody is, is interested in that, but everyone will take the meeting to try and understand what you're doing. So you really spend a lot of time on, on that on that journey. Mm. Um, you can potentially spend too much time because you have to split between customers and investors. And sure. at that st early stage, it's the customer feedback and the sort of the things you need to know are going to cause you problems that are so critical. Mm. So that, that trade-off in time is really, um, really difficult at the outset. And obviously, rejection is a huge part of um, the funding trail <laughs> generally, but... Sounds like you've had a bit yeah. of a rough time. Uh, yeah, like, I mean, rejection's part and parcel of the course mm. as well. I mean, the other side of the house, they have a business model. They have a business that they're, they're following. You have to respect that, you know, mm. and, and your, your business is not always uh, morally entitled to their money. You have to make it work for them. And they're expecting certain things in certain time frames. And if you can't deliver, it's not going to work. But we had to be a bit more creative about how we got initial funding in. Um, we've, we've been lucky enough to be able to get H2020 support, European Space Agency support and right. innovation support from uh, Enterprise Ireland. So small business innovation contracts with uh, Limerick City and, and Dunleary Council. I mean, this is doing real work, but mm. that has filled a gap that would otherwise be there in our business that has allowed the team to, to build a product here and grow something from, from Ireland, you know. And how hands-on has the European Space Agency been? Because we, we spoke about the lack of hardware and having to build it from scratch earlier. God, if they don't have it or if they don't have advice yeah, on it, who, yeah. who does? It, it's quite something having a, a couple of thousand PhDs at your disposal. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it can, it can make a big difference. Mm. So, but, but they're really open. I mean, a lot of people, we were probably surprised that our product would fall under their remit. I mean, it isn't just if you're building satellites, talk to us. There are open calls all the time for people building user-facing products that will integrate a map, GNSS, or geolocation, satellite data. Mm. If you're doing that, there is an ear there um, at Enterprise Ireland here through the space agency and, and the space agency. They will give you money for the work if it's related and if it's a call or a project they're on. So I think we can fall into funding as the source of, of all cash very quickly mm -hmm. um, when an ability to kind of say, look, what we're doing has value. What we're doing is actually changing our process. Right, we're not building... 5G infrastructure or satellites, but the process changes innovation. You know, we're creating new IP in a new way of doing things. Once you can say you're doing that, there is somebody who will put money towards the R&D work you have to do. There is somebody who will help you to fund the protection of that IP. And you come out with a much stronger business proposition when you do go for funding mm -hmm. because it's defensible, it's proven, and you've put all of the time and effort into mapping how it's a good product. In the rush to go quickly, sometimes you'll miss why your product is innovative, why your product is defensible, and you'll miss the opportunities to get those steps right. And once you go into a big market with a big competitor, that weakness could be the one that actually ends up blowing a hole below right. the waterline. Yeah. But a generally a positive spin. Generally great, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, 100%. R&D support has, has been fantastic here. Yeah. And what about you, Laura? Your, your, your funding journey, your R&D journey? Yeah. How so is the HR world for that? Well, the funding journey... Um, so I think, what is it, women were the 1% to 10% club that get funding. You add a second female co-founder and statistically that unfortunately does go down a bit. So, you know, um, Televasa were two female co-founders. Um, so we have, we definitely, you know, have availed of the support that Enterprise Ireland has, you know, has. And they've just introduced a female focused um, um, incentives over the last year, which has been really great. Um, we have found, I think for the most part, we have met with a lot of, of investors. 
And there seems to be this like magic where you are more successful in getting funding when you have the idea and you haven't yet built a product or, you know, you have the concept, proof of concept or whatever. And then there's kind of this magic, you know, MRR number where it's like 50 or 100, um, you know, um, like monthly MRR. And, you know, so we kind of are sitting in the middle of that. So I think, you know, it has been a bit of a challenge for us. But, you know, we have, we've got amazing customer retention. Um, you know, we have a really high um, NPS from our customers and all that kind of stuff. But we still, you know, we still struggle in the VC world in a way, you know, to, to get significant funding that we need to be able to scale to, to, to meet those numbers, you know. So it's a bit of a catch-22. And did you say just at the start of your answer there, you think that's because there are two female founders in your company. That it's a problem if there are two. Well, statistically, mm. um, if you do the research, they were saying if you have one female, you know, founder or co-founder, you know, the percentage of funding you get, if you have two females, it's even lower than that. So, right. interesting. Fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. uh, so you need to have a token female. Yeah. But you need to also have a man there to really be in charge of things. Statistically, right. apparently, yes, yes. But why you know, is that, do you think? Why? Yeah, I'm not, I mean, you know, I... We need to get some of our VCs back in here We now. need to I'm get some of the VCs. put that to Brian Caulfield next time I see yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, and I mean, you know, we, um, and we do, listen, we, ha we have had a great amount of success in fundraising through angel investors, mm. like really incredible. And they've been amazing support you know, these are people who have built businesses, you know, they're there for us to pick up the phone whenever we need support. So we do have a really good, you know, foundation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we do find that we're in this catch-22 where they're like, ah, oh, you're not further enough along if you yeah. come to us, you know, before and everything else. So, you know, I, you know, but if it was easy, you know, we, we wouldn't be here talking about it. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, here you are succeeding in spite of that yeah, um, apparent yeah. or, or perceived bias. Um, and regular viewers will know that we had uh, your co-founder, Jane, on yeah. not so long ago. Um, what is next for Laura and Jane and Talavest? You know, we've spoken about R&D or R&D funding and funding yes. for everything else. Yeah. What is the next big step in scaling for you? So... Last year, we spent a majority of time doing research and development on a new product. Um, so for us, we're getting ready now to launch this product. And basically, it's, you know, looking at the challenge of apparently 50% of us sleepwalk through the day at work, you know, and it's that lost productivity. Mm -hmm. But it's also like the World Health Organization has recognized burnout as an actual disease now. So, you know, we decided that we wanted to really tackle this issue and do some research because it's very complementary to the products that we have now. So the next step for us is going to be, it's, uh, we're calling it the employee energy model and, um, you know, where engagement measures and gives you retention of employees, energy allows your employees to perform at, you know, their 100% their capacity or, or cl hopefully close to that. So that's kind of the, the new thing for us. For at the moment, we are fundraising based upon this new product that we want to roll out because we want to be able to scale, we want to be able to hire more sales and marketing and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's really critical at, you know, an early stage startup to have that funding to be able to do sure. that. Uh, well, Keenan, I'm going to come to you in just a second with the same question, but um, uh, I can't let this go now with you, Laura, just yet without <laughs> asking you more about burnout. Um, there's never a bad time to talk about burnout. Yes. Um, as something of an expert, or you will be when all this R&D is done at least, yes. um, 
Why do you think burnout is such a big problem at the moment? And what would your advice be to people looking to get around it or dodge it if they can? Yeah, absolutely. So the research that, that we have done shows that when you come to work, you have job demands that are on you and you have job resources. So if you think about it, you have energy boosts and you have energy drains. And if that balance of those two things aren't right, what happens is you, it um, leads to stress and it leads to burnout. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you think about, if you have the ability, um, just say your mobile phone, when your mobile phone is at 10% battery, what do you do? You charge it. it. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you had the ability, not only as an organization, but as an individual to say, look, something is off here, what is going on? And to be able to have that kind of self-assessment to say, you need to address this here and put that control, you know, and awareness back to yourself, you know, to be able to avoid. And through doing technology, like using machine learning and predictive analytics, we're able to predict that before it happens. Mm -hmm. So to be able to say like, you know, red alert, red alert, like, you know. Your battery is low. <laughs> your battery is low, and these are the reasons why. Mm. And then, you know, you if, if part of that has to do, it could be home life, it could be work life, you know, but to have that awareness and to know where to address it, I guess, you know, is, is something that I think to be able to preempt that instead of, like, it happening and you're there and you're burnt out, um, you know, would be an amazing thing for, for, you know, employees to be able to have. Agreed. Thank you so much for that insight. And uh, Kian, I have to come back to you now. What was my question? <laughs> it was scaling. Yes, scaling. yes, yes, yes. The yeah. next big step for scaling. Yeah, yeah. I guess for us, the, the step is, is we've proven the product and we're launching this year uh, with projects in Ireland and the UK. Um, we really are looking at tying up deals around partnerships that is, sort of covers the rest of Europe over the next 18 months. Um, Obviously, fundraising. We're always fundraising. Everybody is always fundraising in this city, it seems. But um, aside from those two, it's team building, actually. It's really time to... Um, the hard part, I think, for a business like ours is pivoting from being an R&D company to being a business that is R&D and product management and selling, um, which is a really big transition, I think, culturally, when you spend so much time focusing on the problems to get to a new set, a new level. So that for us, that scale up is a really critical, that's where we are. And it's a critical challenge this year to, to manage that well. Um, and, and how to, are you going to navigate into, I suppose, more of a storytelling mode? Yeah, um, I guess that's on me uh, and bringing in no people. Pressure. No pressure. Yeah. And, and putting in good people that will help us to tell that story. I think it's one of those sectors that probably could benefit from telling its, its own story a little better. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to really figure out how we platform customers that are doing. I mean, we, we deal with a lot of innovation heads in very big and storied organizations. How can we help them to tell people what's going on and to make them aware of the changes that are happening? Um, you know, we, we deal with customers who have 35,000 uh, tenants. They're social landlords, not for profit. They're, you know, solving a housing crisis that we could mm. certainly do with some insights on. Um, and it's like, how can we help them to tell people, you know, what they're doing to make their lives better or to make their communities safer? Uh, and how can we contribute that body of knowledge? So we have a real role as a sort of early uh, promoter of the technology to do that too. So I guess we're raising funds to give that amplification, give it a stage and hopefully at the same time, you know, generate some demand for the product because I guess that's why we're all here too at the end of the day. And so would you say in 
two years, five years, you plan to be a household name, the company? Yeah, I, 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 well, our, we're doing our job if the house owners or house tenants don't know we're there. But we would hope that we're there for the people that own or are managing the estates. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I was going to say to both of you, and I am going to say to both of you, uh, don't go anywhere because we're coming back to you in just a moment for the one to watch, even though it sounds like you might be your own one to watch (laughs) the next few years. But we'll be back with Laura and Kean just after this with their one to watch, the who or what they've got their eye on in business at the moment. Now, my next guest was no stranger to the gym when he played for Connacht Rugby, but when his playing career ended, he realised he could turn that passion for fitness into a viable business. And he did just that with his multi-million euro gym software company. It's Glowfox CEO, Conor O'Loughlin. So, Conor, let's go back to the very start. Let's go back to the pitch because some people may be watching this and they'll know you from your company and others will know you from your sport days. How does one go from the career that you had then to the career that you have now? You must have learned quite a bit along the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not sure how many people know me from my sport days uh, because I uh, probably didn't really have a, uh, an excellent career. I was, I was, I was in Connacht, but I, I was injured a lot. And, and I suppose that helped me build for a life after rugby. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was, I was very fortunate to be able to play professional rugby for the best part of eight years. Um, in the west of Ireland, um, which was fantastic experience, and um, you learn a lot of uh, um, you learn a lot of, of lessons there that that you are very transferable for then when you do kind of transition from from rugby to, to business. Um, you have a passion for for your craft in uh, professional sport, and you have kind of discipline and focus, and um, and this kind of shared alignment towards where you know where everyone as a team are going. Um, and I wanted to go into a career where I had that same passion. Um, not knowing what I wanted to do, I set up a professional services business that did web and app development because before professional rugby, I was um, I, I graduated doing computer science. Um, so I was always kind of a builder and tech was something I was I was very uh, driven by. Um, and then, you know, throughout this, this professional services or this consultancy-led development, I recognized an opportunity to, to solve a big problem um, in an industry that you know was was one that I knew a lot about in, in the fitness industry and had seen firsthand how this shift from uh, the more traditional gym um, environment where people would have an isolated gym experience towards a more group exercise or, or social aspect of fitness and um, so you know that felt like a problem worth solving and given the uh, the kind of marriage of fitness and tech um, which were two things that I, I, I very much enjoyed felt like you know, a natural path for me. So um, that's a little bit about the transition. And what is the problem that Glowfox solved? Tell us what it does. So Glowfox is a business management software system for fitness studios and gyms. But where you know, where we were built for was this, this change or this movement in the industry, which was driven around you know, um, members wanting a better experience. Um, so you saw that there was this rise in uh, the success of boutique fitness and boutique fitness would be categorized by a, a business that um, focused on a small, um, a, a small number of disciplines or maybe one discipline like a yoga studio or a Pilates studio or a CrossFit gym. Um, but they'd go deep in that, that area and they'd have this nearly community of members and it was very much a social and inclusive aspect to, um, to how they delivered their service. And these boutique fitness studios started popping up everywhere and the traditional gym model you know, was forced to kind of react to try and build in a more uh, focus on uh, experience-led 
um, you know, uh, services for, the, for their uh, businesses. And so the traditional software tools out there to serve that more traditional model weren't built for purpose. Um, they were very much clunky and, you know, often this generic provider that serves multiple segments or at very best they were just a, um, a solid booking and payment system. Mm. But for us, we were able to take this very narrow focus on, on uh, who exactly we served and what we felt were the most successful types of businesses in this industry. Uh, speak directly to them and build a platform that allowed them to do everything from manage their memberships to acquire leads to nurture leads through to trialers from then on to members to starting to drive referrals and uh, it comes with a suite of tools that allows their members to book and pay for services through their own branded app and um, their staff to be able to engage directly through um, uh, manage their own schedule through their own app so it was delivered via these uh, omni-channel experiences that were you know built for this type of business so when i think of fitness tech i think of class pass i think of freeletics mind body who i know are your competitors it sounds like you do quite a bit above and beyond what the likes of a class pass or a freeletics would do is like what is that is that is that your business plan or or how do you distinguish yourself in a crowded market yeah so i i'd say how we distinguish ourselves is is probably the opposite we probably we'd probably try to do more for a specific type of business. Right. So when you look at, say, um, you know, a MindBody, for example, who you mentioned as a competitor, uh, a MindBody would, you know, they're a fantastic company and they've achieved a lot and they're, you know, they're obviously valued at over two billion and they are a more, um, more generic provider. So they do, they do serve these different verticals and they also have a B2C element that competes with ClassPass, for example, and they have, you know, um, offerings for hair salons and dog groomers. And so it's very hard to be relevant to a, a specific, uh, you know, niche or, or vertical. And that's where, where we've taken that, that kind of very disciplined approach. And it's, mm. it's like nearly common sense applied with uncommon discipline is like that we know exactly what, who we serve. We get very narrow in defining exactly the type of business. And they are those gym and fitness businesses that um, are delivering a more engaged member experience. Um, so if a business fits with that, that's you know, we're, we're relevant for them and we speak directly to them. And as a result, we can build a platform that's intuitive for them and, and it's more built for purpose. And you know, where we've taken the approach is we, we saw that these were the more successful types of businesses that were um, starting to explode in this industry that was already in, in hyper growth. Um, and that started to, to compound and rather than, you know, try and be all things to all people, we served them well and we did that at a global stage and that started to just, you know, just to generate momentum for it. So we feel that we're, we differentiate because we can speak concisely to that, to that end user and our guardrails are fitness. So, you know, as a result, even our go-to-market is very much around, you know, establishing credibility and a voice of supporting these fitness entrepreneurs be successful. So we develop a lot of content that is enabling them to implement strategies of how to be successful, not necessarily always in the realm of software. It's actually more just aligned with, you know, helping them to uh, enable their members to achieve their goals. Um, and because we only serve that type of business, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a unique well, it's obviously working for you. Six years old, a thousand customers, 23 countries. Must have been quite the evolution from six years ago to now. Yeah, we're, yeah, I say we're actually close to 3,000 now. And, and right. um, I know we've got millions of end members in over 60 countries. And 
We're a team of over 150 now. I obviously read, read an outdated <laughs> article. No, a no. customers <laughs> in 23 countries. Sorry, 3,060 yeah. countries. Yeah, no, it's been... That's it's even been, better. It's been great and, and, and it's... Uh, yeah, you, you, you take a lot of... Uh, you take a lot of pride in, in, in what the team has built and the team that we have built. Mm. You know, when you when you look at um at where you've come, where you're you're starting to deliver value for you know, for millions of of end users and helping them achieve their their fitness goals and have a positive impact on their health and well being and, and also support these passionate fitness entrepreneurs that that take a leap themselves and often leave a corporate job to follow their, their passion and open a Pilates studio, for example. Like it's a very enriching and purposeful work uh, for our team to be able to um, to help them live their dreams. So um, I think as it starts to grow, you take you take a lot of pride in that. And how many are on your team now? So we're just over 150 now, I think. Um, and we're, you know, we've just opened an office in, in, in Belfast and uh, an office in Minneapolis there in the last uh, month as well too. Right. So we've got about seven offices in total. Seven offices. How do you handle uh, the company and the culture scaling at that rate. Yeah, so we've we've kind of three main offices between LA, Dublin, and and Sydney, and then within Ireland we have a, a base in Cork, a base in Galway, and a base in Belfast, and a base in Dublin. And um, so they, I think, the way that we we, we we look at how we we handle that is we ensure that we you know we obsess about culture, and we obsess about the team, and we make sure that we're firstly we. We have rigor in our recruitment process that we are uh, hiring the right people that are coming in with the right mindset and that are motivated by joining you know a fast growing company that is that is changing and constantly evolving and and they're passionate about you know building the the machine that's building the product um so I, I think you know the the investment and the over investment in resources there is has definitely paid us back um but also your the the challenge is that you you're trying to transpose the culture. Um, across different geos, across different time zones, and it's it's very difficult to do. And and we've taken an approach. We don't do a a yearly like offsite where everybody comes and and spends time together. What we do instead is we invest with moving people um, as much as we can in between offices, so that way it is more real time. Um, so um, it's very it's it is very powerful when you when you can actually bring people from from the, the mothership over over to, to to Sydney office to spend time or bring people back from Sydney mm-hmm. to Dublin so they can absorb the culture and and they can take it back with them but you know focusing on on keeping culture and um and really having our our values as a voice elevated within the company is is a way to ensure that you can scale with that and then having framework and process and constantly looking at that and on how we make decisions and how we run meetings and how we our expectations around communication and um, and ensuring that we have discipline in that enables us to um, to to be kind of be successful in in this hyper growth. And your ten million funding windfall recently must have been quite the boost from a team point of view, from a confidence point of view, and also quite the the aid to the scaling process as well. Yeah, it's, it's great to get support from from Octopus Ventures led our, our, our Series A back in May, um, and uh, it was um, we also had participation by our current investors, Notion Capital and and uh, Partech Ventures and Tribal VC, um, and yeah, it's 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 great to get the the capital in and, and as well too to get the validation and and what we're excited about too is the partner that that we get in with that. So our board, they're very. Um, they're very, not a hands-on board, but they're, they're, they've a lot of, we've a lot of, we've a well-rounded board. We've, 
you know, we've got like, for example, one of our, our board members, Joss White himself, built out Message Labs, which was enterprise SaaS that was acquired by Symantec for, um, I think it was seven hundred million, um, you know, about, about ten years ago. So he's been in the seat, and mm. he's gone through the journey, and and being able to surround yourself with, uh, you know, with uh, with uh, people who have are able to, you know, foresee and be able to help you sidestep a few costly mistakes is, is great. So, you know, in terms of the capital, it's fantastic. It allows us to continue this momentum and continue this global growth. Um, but um, I think the partners that we've gotten on board too with, with uh, Octopus and our, our current investors are, are great too from a value-add perspective. It sounds like you have quite the board. How yeah, did we're you, lucky, yeah. Yeah, how did you put Last week, actually, we, we had a whole show on um, compiling your, your powerhouse board. It was mm. a, a lot of interesting opinions there. I'd, I'd love to get your opinion on how does one put together the best board possible? How did you do it? It's tough, like, um, and probably it's a, a little bit of luck, too, at the, at the early stages because, you know, it's only when you start to, to grow that you realise how how big an impact they have on it. Like if you consider that your, your co-founders are like your, your spouses, if, if that's the analogy, then your, your board members are like your, your father-in-law and your mother-in-law. Like, right. you, you, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to analogy. get rid of them, yeah. but like, you know, and, and they are from, um, but they have an important uh, influence on the direction of your company. And so I think at the early stages, when, when we took our, our first institutional round, uh, we were in the fortunate position that, w- that we had uh, SaaS-specific uh, VCs that were that were co-leading around, and you know having that um, that kind of narrow focus of they only invested in companies like us, so their portfolio were were other companies exactly like us. So you have this instant access to other mm-hmm. founders with that, but um, as well to the the operators and partners on the board, um, they. They didn't look alike, so you've got an, an ex operator with with one of them. You've got you know a, a more uh, metrics or financially or a process driven one with with another, and then you've got you know this this nice kind of complementary skill set that um, that overall make up a good composition of a board. Um, and so I think you know we're we're lucky in that regard, but you know I, I'm it definitely. It definitely that experience has led to being a, very selective about you know who joins the company mm-hmm. and um, and not be completely driven by things like valuation at a at a point when you're looking for capital because it's uh, you know you, I, every day of the week I go for a, a lower valuation with a with a with a VC that can uh, that can help you achieve the things that you need to achieve both from a brand recognition um, from a, a fund perspective but also from who will be sitting on your board perspective. Mm-hmm. And I know you've got your eyes on that IPO prize down the line. Five years, I think I read somewhere. Um, that would yeah. be a realistic goal for you. Yeah, like I think IPO is it's it, it'd be it'd be a nice path to to be on, and um, and like yeah, when we've taken VC money, we we know that that there is uh, uh, there's a liquidity event that that um, that we we need to get to for that. But I I don't I don't think as as a journey, I don't think that's the destination for us. Mm. I think that's just another milestone. If we if we get that, that that's one path. Um, but I think you know what you're seeing in, in particularly for private SaaS companies now is that there is, you know, there are even larger acquisitions that um, are there are um, there are other ways that um, that uh, you can provide a liquidity event that is. Uh, um, that is meeting returns that 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 your investors would would like, but mm. um, I think yeah, I don't I don't think for us 
our journey is more around how we do this at scale, how we kind of deliver more value to more fitness entrepreneurs globally. And, and as long as the market opportunity is there for us, we're not, you know, we're not taking our head up anytime soon for, for any, any kind of exit. There's an awful lot of talk about the coronavirus at the moment and its effects on the global economy. It strikes me that maybe not fitness tech, but fitness generally can be seen as something that's a luxury and maybe not global recession proof. Yeah. How would you feel about that? Do you think the fact maybe that your B2B would save you or it wouldn't save others? Yeah, um, it's it's good because we're, we're even seeing now that some of, the, some of the gyms and studios that we had... Uh, we had taken on because a, a big part of our new business comes from them themselves starting up a business and mm. uh, particularly in, in Asia where we see you know, we've seen huge growth in the, in the past two years in, in regions like Japan and Singapore and Hong Kong um, and that's definitely started slow where you started to see that actually some of these gyms and studios just are delaying their opening or they're, they're not opening now and then others are, are struggling because people just aren't going to the gym because of the fear um, mm. of the, the contamination so um, it is starting to, at a small scale, have have a bit of an, an impact. Um, I think in general, as a, as a B2B, you are a bit more defensible because for us, we don't rely, you mentioned on ClassPass, for example, mm. they rely on more network effects. Um, yeah. So I think in general, as a business where one business can use Glowfox um, and get the, you know, get a lot of value from this without actually other businesses needing to use it. So in its own right, it, it doesn't rely on that. So it's a bit more naturally defensible. But I think, you know, with the coronavirus, it's it's more wait and see and, and see what kind of unfolds over the past next couple of months, see a real impact. Okay. And now a total curveball for you uh, from the coronavirus uh, to the Six Nations. I would be shot if I let you out of the studio without asking you about Ireland's chances in the Six Nations. Oh, God. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I... Is is obviously disappointed for you match the, the the last one and um, um but um I think there's a lot a lot of positivity coming coming from the the previous games in in terms of how how Andy Farrell has started his uh, his campaign so um you know like it's 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 tough it's it's kind of tough to be to be in in that, in that position um we kind of a lot of uh, the microscope is on them now so. Hopefully they start to start to find a, a bit of attacking form and show the show the, show what they can do. Mm. Um, but uh, I wouldn't hold out, out much hope for uh, for for claiming the championship. Uh, you yeah. know, from betting man. Not going to call it either way. I, I not here now anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably not. Fair enough. Thank you, Connor. You're welcome. Thank you. Joe presents All In together with AIB, backing Irish business. Kian O'Loughlin there, someone who knows a thing or two about scaling digital himself. I'm still here in studio with Laura and Kian, who are about to tell me what their one to watch is this week and why. Ladies first again, Laura. Thank what you. What is your one to watch? So my one to watch this week is the music industry. Okay. So what is so interesting is that over the last four years, the music industry and revenues have grown significantly because of all the, all the streaming platforms and services like Spotify. And what's happening is that as an artist, it's very easy to produce your own content. So the production that's required is down, content is up. Um, and, you know, we have the likes of Spotify who just actually released, um, you know, an article recently around 
introducing podcasts as a way of to further try to make money because they're not very profitable. A lot of the monies go back to the record labels and so forth. And of course, there's been loads of digital disruption in the music industry. But when it comes to tracking royalties and, you know, looking at, um, you know, artists through streaming really are making a lot of money. It's really hard, you know, hard to make any kind of a living being an artist these days. So I think that we're going to see something really big come into the music industry as a digital um, disruptor very soon. Cool. We'll be keeping an eye on that. Thank you. What about you, Keith? Uh, supply chains. It's quite boring, but with the COVID-19 virus, there's an enormous lag between the disruption to supply chains and the impact it's going to have here and in our economy. Okay. Um, we make all our goods here, but if you're making anything, it's coming from China or parts are coming from China. Or you're really reliant on the, they really are the engine of an mm. awful lot of, of the world's production. Um, the, the virus may or may not cause sort of masses of pandemic, but I think some of the damage is already done and we're only going to start seeing it over the next fortnight, months, as containers arrive that are empty from China. You know, they're spending six months okay. on, on at sea, or sorry, six weeks leaving China at the end of February. You're really only going to start to see disruptions in supply chains at the end of March. So we're about to kind of realise just how much of our stuff comes from those factories. That and been who do you think is largely going to be affected by that? Will it be like people in particular industries like yourself or will it be consumers or both? I think, I think definitely people who are in uh, industry and manufacturing are going to be affected. Um, everything from paint to microchips to capacitors. So it, no matter what kind of content you need for your uh, production line, uh, it's very possible it's going to be disrupted or you're going to have limitations. We're starting to get emails about supply time extensions. It'll have a knock-on then in terms of projects, in terms of the amount of business that gets done this year. Mm. It could well trigger sort of stocking panics in some of the bigger companies. And if a bigger company comes with a bigger purchase order, we're going to struggle to get our hands on the goods we need. So some of the consequences sort of in the gears and mechanics of the economy are going to be quite challenging. Uh, And they're baked in. It's just going to have to play itself out, you know, even if the virus disappears tomorrow. That certainly is one to watch, yeah. isn't it? I hope so. Well, I hope it's fine. <laughs> Hopefully it will all work we'll out just fine. Otherwise, we'll have, fine. To, we'll have to have you back and talk about <laughs> some more um, otherwise. Laura and Keane, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Millie. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Thanks so much to my guests, Laura, Keane and Connor for being with us. Thanks, of course, to you for watching and to AIB for backing the show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, don't forget to hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast and YouTube each week so that you never miss an episode. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.